Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Animal Studies Podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jenny Splitter, an independent journalist covering food, agriculture, and climate change. And my guest today is Michelle Nyhaus, the author of the new book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Beloved Beasts traces the movement to protect and conserve species from extinction, from early battles to save charismatic species like the American bison and bald eagle, to today's global effort to defend life on a larger scale. Michelle is a project editor at The Atlantic, a contributing editor at High Country News, and an award-winning reporter whose work has been published in National Geographic and The New York Times Magazine. Hi, Michelle. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Jenny. First of all, I have to say this is a fascinating history. It's just a wonderful read, and it's filled with so many parallels to the issues uh, that conservation and the environmental movements are really grappling with today. So I really loved reading it. Mm, I'm glad. Thank you. And I wanted to start with your own history, because I'm really curious when you first had the idea for the book. Is this something you've wanted to do for a really long time? When did you first kind of get the idea to trace the history of the conservation movement? It It is an idea I've had for a very long time, but I can't say it took any kind of workable shape until a few years ago. I have an undergraduate degree in biology, and after college, I spent a few years working as a field tech on wildlife research projects in the desert southwest, and that was really fun work. But it also was very memorable because I got a glimpse of the politics surrounding endangered species, which were even at a local level, or maybe especially at a local level, really contentious, sometimes even violent. And I kept thinking, shouldn't we have worked out these really profound questions by now? (laughs) And I knew some of the famous names in conservation history, but I didn't have a sense. And I don't think many conservationists have a sense of conservation as a movement, as as a tradition that's developed ideas and answered questions over time. That was the first glimmering of curiosity on my part about conservation history. And it's always been an interest of mine. But probably about five years ago, I started thinking about trying to assess the successes of conservation. There are some biologists and some other researchers out there who are who are trying to do this in a quantitative way, you know, actually looking at counterfactuals to try to estimate where, if, were it not for conservation efforts, you know, where, would would certain species be more endangered or less endangered given certain actions by humans? And I thought maybe there's a way to do that in a qualitative way to tell the story of conservation in a way that's accessible to a broad audience to try and look at what it's done right and what it's done wrong over time and, and what we can learn from, because I think so much of it is still relevant, even though we are facing as we all know, we are facing a lot of unusual and very pressing crises. Uh, a lot of what conservation has learned over the past century or so is still is still very usable and still very relevant to us today. Yeah, as, as someone who's covered kind of food and ag and the environmental movement through that lens, yeah, I didn't really know the, con- the history of the conservation movement 
in at this level of detail. So it was accessible to me. And it was, yeah, it was just also amazing to kind of, like I said, see how these issues, you know, were either just how they sort of arise kind of early in the history, and you kind of trace people sort of grappling with them more as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been having the same fights for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's probably good reason for that, in that some of these issues are not unresolvable, at least need to be resolved over and over again as circumstances change. There's also a, I think, a dysfunctional aspect to it in that because conservationists don't have a very good sense of their own history, they do keep having the same fights over and over again. Were there any people you had in mind that you wanted to include when you first started writing the book that ended up kind of getting left out or or that you made a decision, you know, maybe that they didn't quite fit in the same way you you initially envisioned them? Was there any kind of grappling on your part of who to keep in and keep out? Yeah, definitely. I needed some kind of device to help me through it so that it wasn't 10,000 pages long. <laughs> and I did hit on the idea of using pivotal characters to illustrate pivotal moments in the movement. So there were there were ideas I wanted to illustrate, and then there were also characters I knew I would have to include, like Aldo Leopold, for instance, is kind of a pivot point in the book in the same way that he's a pivot point in the conservation movement, I think. And I knew that certain names would for sure be included, Rachel Carson, John Muir, Gipper Pinchot. I didn't, but I didn't know whether or not they would be turning points or they would, you know, command their own chapters. And and then there were ideas that I, I wanted to illustrate and I kind of went out looking for the, the right person to encapsulate those. For instance, I knew I wanted to I wanted to show the internationalization of the conservation movement from a movement that was mostly based in North America and Europe and worked in North America and Europe to a movement that that did work all over the world. And Julian Huxley, who founded the International Union for the Conservation of Nature and was a British biologist, ended up being the person through whom I told that story. Yeah, he is a fascinating, that whole family is very fascinating. We're going to, we're going to, there. <laughs> I wanted to start with Carl Linnaeus, how this shift in viewing nature happens over time and the start of kind of cataloging nature in the beginning that you but you, you describe as, you know, more like a set of pantry shelves. Uh, you, his contemporaries kind of are looking at the, the, the metaphorical tree of life as more like a set of pantry shelves and then kind of really thinking about how these organisms interact with each other or how they are in their habitats. Can you just tell us a little more about this pantry shelf view? Is it a product of that time? Yeah, well, I mean, Carl Linnaeus, who's a fascinating guy in his own right, was a Swedish biologist. And he was working, obviously, before Darwin. And he was working at a time when people thought that species were these static units, static categories that were created by God and that lasted forever. (laughs) You know, it wasn't until much, much later at the beginning of the 1800s when scientists in Europe finally realized that extinction could happen at all. And it wasn't until much later in the 1800s that people realized in any kind of serious way that that human activities could drive species extinct, you know, that humans could be responsible for extinctions. Linnaeus certainly didn't have a sense of the evolution of species and that 
that species could change over time due to natural selection. So he, as I said, identified and categorized species as if they were items, somewhat as if they were items on a pantry shelf. He was really interested in in organizing nature so that it could be studied more efficiently, you know, so that so that scientists from different countries and different places could have a common language for talking about species. And it wasn't until after Darwin that taxonomy became interested in the relationships among species, the, the sort of familial relationships among species and how they and, and what their place was and relationship was on the evolutionary tree of life. And it seems like this aspect of taxonomy, at least to me as a reader, you know, when we get to the period in American history where, where where you're writing about William Hornaday hunting bison to conserve them and then to sort of mount them. And there's there's that's sort of where we see this darker side of conservation and and also just this idea of kind of collecting creatures for your own sake. And, you know, even there's this episode where this young man is put in a, in, in a cage at the zoo, this man, young man from the Congo. So that's sort of like the darkest aspect of this idea of kind of creating this collection for the benefit of mostly wealthy white people. I, that was probably the, the one of the most troubling parts to, to read, but it was it was also you know really interesting. So what do you make of William Hornaday now and like what his legacy kind of tells us about the conservation movement? Yeah, William Hornaday. <laughs> so so William Hornaday was obviously long past lived and worked long past Linnaeus's time and was active at the end of the 1800s in America. He was a started out his career as a trophy hunter who as you say shot and collected specimens all over the world for museums and was working at the what would become the Smithsonian Museum when he became aware that this commercial slaughter of bison on the Great Plains was driving the species extinct, which was quite an insight at the time, really, because people were well aware of the scale of the of the slaughter. But it was still this relatively new idea that humans could drive such a physically large and abundant species extinct. It, it took, even if people knew it intellectually, they didn't really grasp it emotionally. Mm-hmm. And so... I, I like his story even I mean he was a horrible person in many ways but I I really find his story so resonant because it encapsulates because his work on the bison and then what has happened to the bison since and what conservationists have done since I feel like encapsulates the whole journey of the conservation movement and and encapsulates a lot of the possibilities that are available to us now because he had the he had enough insight to realize that the bison was a valuable species and needed to be protected. He went about that in some very weird ways, as you say, like, you know, for instance, heading out on the plains to, to shoot some of the last remaining bison with the idea that stuffing them and showing them to the public would, would raise concern about the species, which, which to be fair, it did. There were, there were very few zoos at the time. And so taxidermy was a, was a very popular way of, and really the only way for people to get an idea of what some of these animals were like in life. But he, he also was, was his concern for the bison was rooted in his nationalism and his racism and in his, in his concern for white masculinity, he and, and Teddy Roosevelt and some of the other people he collaborated with were really interested in 
not just protecting the bison for its own sake, but protecting this this kind of romantic view of the the frontier and the importance of the frontier for preserving the white American man, which was thought to be endangered in, in its own way at the time because of the, the way society was industrializing. And it was thought that men of the time were kind of fading away in offices <laughs> without the, you know, without the healthful effects of hunting. So so he did a lot of the right things. He did them for what we would now consider the wrong reasons. And he also didn't, like, he didn't have a sense of the ecology of the prairie, mm-hmm. understandably so, because ecology was so young at the time. So he just really raised bison at, at the Bronx Zoo, what would become the Bronx Zoo, where he was director later in his career, took them out to the prairie and plunked them down <laughs> like cows. You know, he didn't he didn't really finish the job of restoring them to the landscape as we understand it today. But today, you know, thanks to his work, thanks to the fact that we have the bison today, there has been this very, or is now this very vibrant effort to restore the bison more fully to the plains, led for the most part by Native American tribes and First Nations. And Hornaday was also very, very obtuse. He blamed Native Americans for the slaughter, contrary to contemporary evidence. And he also didn't really understand how how devastating the decline of the bison was for so many Plains tribes. So the fact that they're taking his unfinished and and in some ways short-sighted work, the tribes are taking this work and leading the way toward a grander, more inclusive kind of restoration to me is really inspiring. And the fact that they're working with a species that's not in crisis, that's doing pretty well, is to me another opportunity that I think conservation should take more advantage of. Right. Kind of showing, I guess, some of the community-based efforts you talk about later in the book, and then, you know, also sort of the power of effective management, I guess, conservation management. Yeah. Working with, we think of conservation as so much about, you know, saving these highly endangered species, because those are dramatic stories that get a lot of attention. But, you know, what is really more effective in terms of what conservation wants to accomplish is, is working with a species that's already doing okay and and figuring out how humans can live alongside of it and how it can be restored or be preserved in its ecosystem, you know, as a functioning part of its ecosystem. So the fact that that's happening with the bison is just a, I think, such a great inspiration for, for where the conservation movement can go or continue to go. So Hornaday later ends up becoming kind of an ally with a woman named Rosalie Edge, who is, I have to say, is probably my favorite part of the book, even though I'm sure she's problematic in her own right. But this like scene of her kind of marching over to the Audubon Society meeting to disrupt it is just really amazing. I mean, it could be, you know, a scene out of a movie. I'm curious, like how you, you came across the accounts of that meeting. Was it mostly like from her, you know, letters about that or or were there meeting minutes? Like, how did you piece that all together? Because it's really this amazing <laughs> scene. Also, this incredible privilege that you set up early on that like, the stock market's crashing, about to start crashing or something like that. And she's sort of like, I'm off to save the birds. Doesn't matter. I know. I mean, I don't think they knew what was going on at the time. Uh, It happened on the day of the stock market crash in 1929, this pivotal movement, this pivotal meeting of the Audubon Society. But it was so resonant to me that, that this, that this argument was, was happening on this day that the entire world or the world as they knew it was crumbling around them. So Rosalie Edge did leave behind a very 
detailed unpublished memoir that had a lot of those. I mean, it had a kind of blow by blow account of that meeting from her perspective, of course. And and she was very, I think I quote a few lines from her memoir. She was very funny and, and very sort of... Uh, her, her sort of acidic humor is expressed in that memoir and, and in her in her account of what she said and what was said to her and how she was perceived. And then I did all the Audubon meeting minutes are preserved at the New York Public Library. And so I was able to go through those minutes and, and reconstruct how things had officially, the official account of how things had gone down that day. But it was really an important turning point in the conservation movement because she was arguing with the Audubon Society about whether or not they should be protecting bird species that they didn't particularly like. Up until that point, conservation had been assumed to be an effort to protect species that mostly that people like to hunt or that they thought were beautiful or important in some way. Uh, for instance, you know, as I was talking about with Hornaday, they felt like it was an, an important national symbol, important to for white men to be able to hunt it. And Rosalie Edge was saying, look, you aren't sticking up for these birds of prey that many people consider pre- pests. You know, you're not opposing the state of Alaska's effort to impose bounties on the shooting of of bald, or offer bounties for the shooting of bald eagles. If you're going to be a bird protection organization, you need to protect all birds. You can't just pick and choose. And, and you know, she wasn't an ecologist. She was incredibly intelligent and, and was a self-educated scientist in many ways. But she she just intuited that this was not the right way to go about conservation. And I think she was so farsighted in that way. And, and of course, just a fiery person and willing to stick up for what she believed in a way that that made waves and and cowed the quite powerful board of the Audubon Society into eventually into changing its tune. And it also it seems to me sets up sort of one of the recurring themes in the book about kind of the role of institutions, sort of how important are the institutions in conserving nature and species, and then and then how important are kind of the activists, the rabble-rousers, the troublemakers from outside. I'm fascinated by seeing that play out in kind of the environmental movement, you know, organizations that have been around for a while that try to affect change maybe through more of a diplomatic route with sort of, you know, engaging all the stakeholders and then the sort of more activist organizations. And it's interesting, I guess for me, I'm, I'm always kind of grappling with like who's more effective and which ones we need more of. So I'm curious how you kind of see that tension in the conservation movement. Like, do we have kind of a good balance of institutionalists and activists or is it kind of leaning more to, towards one side or the other? I don't know. Do you see that as a divide still? Yeah. And I, I think that that's true of any movement. You know, at the time when Rosalie Edge was challenging the Audubon Society, the Audubon Society was quite a popular organization with a, with a large membership. And it had gotten a bit complacent, you know, like any institution, it even even an institution that's striving for reform, it had gotten a bit invested in the status quo. And it had gotten a bit too cozy, for instance, with gun and ammunition manufacturers. And, and that was apparently one of the reasons why they were leery of, of challenging these threats to birds of prey, because those policies were supported by by sportsmen who also supported the, the Audubon Society. So we need those outsiders, I think, in any movement to come in and say, look, what, you know, what the heck are you doing? I think in the conservation movement, 
it's been especially important in recent years because, and and we can, I'm sure we'll get to this, but because the international conservation movement has such a history of working along colonial pathways and and leveraging colonial power to get its work done. It's been especially important in recent decades for the conservation movement to have a grassroots, a growing grassroots presence in outside North America and Europe. And a lot of those locally based conservation efforts are, are doing what I consider some of the most important work in the conservation movement and, and challenging those established conservation organizations that that I think would and do disavow their colonial past, but still carry that DNA, still carry those those habits of mind and the and those those strategies from that era, and and are, I think that they're being infused with new ideas from grassroots environmental groups in somewhat the same way that Rosalie Edge woke up the Audubon Society back in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, when I think about sort of both Edge and Hornaday, there there's a lot that both kind of accomplished, and then. Um, especially Hornaday, you know, this sort of this problematic and racist elements. Um, I'm curious, like, how you, how was it challenging to kind of convey, take a step back and kind of write about these characters, critic? Did you have a sense already kind of the, uh, of what sort of context to place them in? Or like at any point were you, were you kind of enamored with these characters and, and like, you know, was it hard maybe to kind of distance yourself at all? Yeah, that's a good question. The racism and colonialism and and to some extent sexism that's present in the conservation movement. And I, you know, I should I should make clear that there's nothing racist or colonialist about the practice of conservation. I mean, that's probably one of our most basic, <laughs> basic tools of survival as a species. But the way it has been practiced by certain individuals throughout the history of the conservation movement has has been racist and colonialist. And, and I, so I knew about these complicated or reprehensible individuals in the past of the movement. And I always knew that I wanted to acknowledge that. I wanted to, you know, I set out to write an accessible history of conservation and I wanted to write a full history of conservation, you know, that that didn't, I didn't want to just celebrate its successes. But as I worked on my research and my writing, it became clear that, that the racism and colonialism wasn't just something I wanted to acknowledge in a, you know, in a footnote, so to speak. It was something I wanted to incorporate into the story and show that it is a pattern throughout the movement. It's certainly, as I said, it's not something that everybody is guilty of in the conservation movement by any means, or that the practice of conservation is is in some inherent way. But it, it's a recurring pattern in the conservation movement. It turns up in every generation in different ways. And I think it's something that the movement needs to grapple with if it is going to be more inclusive and and extend its reach and and really become something become more than the you know significant but still niche concern that it is today. When we get to Aldo Leopold in the book, we kind of witness this bigger shift in thinking about species from cataloging and sort of collection to thinking about organisms how and where they actually live. It's kind of this first sense of habitat it sounds like though he uses the term land and this idea of the land ethic as well. He comes up with so many important ideas. Why do you think Leopold was able to see species in this in this deeper way? It seems like he had a very different life than some of these other figures that are included earlier in the book in terms of just living actually on the land. That's just my impression. 
Well, I will say that I, I one one fear I had going into this project was that I would discover something terrible about Aldo Leopold, <laughs> and then I would have to, you know, talk about Aldo Leopold's dark side. And I was relieved to find out that, you know, of course he is he was human and was a man of his time and and didn't foresee everything that his work stands up today and is still useful today and, and is still, I think, is admirably humane in a way that many early conservationist work wasn't. He incorporated humans into his vision in a way that I think we could still, the conservation movement could still learn a lot from. As far as what made Leopold Leopold, he grew up in a large family in the Midwest. And I spent some time looking at his early notebooks and and school books from when he was 10 and 12 years old. And there's a lot of Leopold there already. You know, he's taking these meticulous notes about what he saw on his long walks around the prairie, but he's also expressing his real joy in these species in this very eloquent way for a 10 and 12 year old. He's a kid, but he's just clear that he's so delighted by being in the company of other forms of life. Some of that may have just been something he discovered himself in those you know, in his explorations. But he also learned from his dad, who really loved hunting, but was ahead of his time in the sense that he recognized that because there were so few game laws at this time, so few real limits on what you could shoot and when, Leopold's dad recognized that that individuals needed to be very careful about what they shot and how many animals they shot if these species were to continue. So he impressed very strongly on Leopold and his siblings that it was important to be an ethical sportsman. And I think Leopold carried those experiences throughout his life. And and in addition, he had a close, supportive family, and he, he wrote just tens of thousands of letters to them throughout his life. And then he was father of five kids and had a long, wonderful, wonderfully close marriage, which is not to say that those things are important ingredients or necessary ingredients for everyone. But I think that the support from family and the closeness with family that he had throughout his life certainly made it possible for him to do his work in practical ways. But I think also just gave him this optimistic view of humanity that really shines through in his work, even though he gets very distressed about the destruction that humanity is wreaking on the planet. And he does, he has his dark moments of despair, but he ultimately believes there is a place for, he sees that there's a place for humans, you know, in the assemblage of life that humans can play a constructive role. And I don't think he ever abandons that belief. And I, I think a lot of other conservationists do see their work more as protecting nature from humans. And Leopold never really saw his mission that way. And that's a, a worldview that more conservationists could could stand to adopt today. Yeah, that was kind of brings me to my next question, which is you write about him bridging the gap between those who want to protect land and species from humans with those who want to protect it for humans. So I'm wondering if is this kind of the beginning point of what gets us to towards more of a community approach to conservation? Do you think we kind of can trace that back to him? I think so. I mean, Leopold's, in, in some ways, I, I, Leopold's vision for, for humans as what he called plain members and citizens of, of the planet as a, as a, as organisms that lived among other species and, you know, perhaps had special attributes or, or special capabilities, but, but lived with humility among other species. I think that is, it's both an older vision and a more 
and a very prescient vision because, you know, of course, it harks back to the time when before the modern conservation movement, when people were managing, so to speak, species around them just because they needed them for food and shelter and needed there to be plenty of them the next season. And so, you know, exercised local forms of conservation to that end. And so it's looking back to that, but also looking toward the future and saying, we still, even though our societies are much larger and more complex and, and the threats are bigger, we need to figure out how to live alongside other species again. We need to figure out how that's going to work for us today with our vastly more complicated world. Yeah, this whole philosophy of our ethical obligation to the land is 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 fascinating to me and and it is kind of inspiring to to read about his optimism. Just for myself having been covering climate change and the importance of leaving land alone, you know, how much we need and just how important that was. It was it was kind of because I had never read him before. So it was very interesting to come across him in this book and see the beginnings of that idea. And and also having optimism in a time when there's sort of the Dust Bowl of compare that to reading about the warnings about climate change and feeling all this despair. But he was able to kind of persist and feel like there was a possibility we could kind of recover the land. I can see why he would be a really important figure. Yeah, I Do you think, I mean, what you say about facing these, what's often seem like apocalyptic crises, one of the Mm -hmm. rewards of, of walking through this history for me was to realize that people were doing conservation at times that, you know, we look back and we think, okay, we, we dealt with the dust bowl. You know, of course there's still, (laughs) there's still lots of problems with soil conservation, but we, we averted that crisis. But the people working at the time didn't have that kind of assurance. You know, it was just as scary to them as climate change is for us. Like, is this what the world's going to be like? You know, are we going to have black clouds of dust moving over our houses and towns and and sweeping into our living rooms uh, regularly from now? You know, is this what we're going to be living with? And they must have felt the same kind of apocalyptic fear that we did today and, and that they persisted in their work and that they persisted in the hope that there would be a future and that it was worth planning for and fighting for was inspiring to me. It made me think, okay, you know, we, we can keep going too. Well, it's, it's interesting. That kind of brings me to Julian Huxley and his kind of ongoing debates with his brother, Aldris, who wrote Brave New World, and reading about these sort of different philosophies, one kind of having more of a faith in institutions and, you know, his, his brother just ha- that filling him with gloom, I think was one part of the book, which is, I feel like I feel that within my own gloomy Gen X heart. So I, I really, that really resonated for me and just this kind of struggle for like how we figure out going forward, kind of like, can we trust institutions? Should we trust them? Or what is the right way to hold them accountable? Do we, you know, and just kind of figuring out where to stand on that is is really interesting. I'm wondering, were you familiar with kind of the, the debate going on in that family before writing the book? And sort of like, what did you make of that back and forth? Yeah, no, I wasn't. And I mean, I knew about Aldous Huxley. And I, I of course, knew about Brave New World. And I knew something about his his philosophy of life and his, his, his intellectual journey. And I knew something about Julian Huxley's work, but I didn't know much about him personally, but there I did find their correspondence fascinating because of what we were talking about earlier, because of the push and pull between institutions and the grassroots and, you know, centralized authority and dispersed authority. And 
Julian Huxley had a lot of had a lot of faith in in centralized authority. Kind of thought, you know, well, a world run run by science would just be a, run, a world run by scientists would be much more efficient and productive. And 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 all this, to his credit, was extremely suspicious of this idea. And mm-hmm. even though the brothers were very close and and you know, really loved each other and, and kept up a correspondence throughout their 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 respectively long lives, they they really had a different view of the place of authority versus the individual. And, and I think the fact that they were brothers and interested in the same questions was just a very interesting way to, for me to illustrate that ongoing tension in the conservation movement and in, in movements in general. And this idea, I, I, don't know, I think it was Huxley who maybe this idea of like that, you know, only if only scientists could be in charge, everything would be, would be, <laughs> better is it's I mean it's something we still see playing out often like this idea of like our politics and scientists at least I see it a lot on Twitter anyway of just keep politics out of it we want to be science-based like there aren't humans having those conversations that have all of our own that bring all of our own biases to the table yeah so it's interesting that that still kind of persists it is still a pretty big debate I think among scientists yeah I mean I'm I'm much happier to see people saying trust science than I am to see them say trust Tucker Carlson you know I mean I'm glad to see people defending the scientific method and thank goodness we now have an administration that respects the scientific method and the finding of scientists. But I often see the champions of science go too far, maybe in a Chang and cheek way, but I still don't think it's, <laughs> I still don't think it's advisable to be saying just trust science, trust scientists. We should put scientists in office instead of politicians. You know, scientists are human too, and they have the same foibles as any other human and they have the same they can be corrupted by power just like anyone else. So science and scientific method and scientific data are incredibly important part of policymaking, but I don't necessarily want to see scientists holding elected office and much less unchecked power. Right. So as we head into the, in the 1960s in the book, Huxley is sent by UNESCO on this three-month tour through 10 Central and Eastern African countries. And he writes about the the trip for a series of articles for The Observer that he's worried about the fate of national parks in these African countries because as these independent governments form, he worries they may come to see the national parks as relics of colonialism. And you point out that these parks are, in fact, relics of colonialism, not just because of like when they were created, but based on the actual practices of sort of how these parks were founded by, in some cases, evicting people from their own land. I mean, that those were purely essentially colonialist. So what was the history that Huxley was missing? Like, was he kind of unaware of the history or was it that his faith in institutions and centralized authority in the, in the conservation movement did just sort of blind him to the history that was there, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it was it, Huxley was reflecting this anxiety among European conservationists at the time who had done work in Africa and elsewhere, these European conservationists had, had worked with colonial governments to establish these national parks. And then as independence rolled across Africa, they feared that these national parks would not be managed in the same way or would be undone. They basically had no understanding or faith in the ability of African people <laughs> to manage their own wildlife and natural resources. And I think Huxley 
Huxley was a was not as toxic as some of his colleagues on this point. I mean, he was, a, he was an intelligent person. He was widely traveled. He had faith, as he put it. I mean, it was it was extremely condescending, but he had faith that African people would, as quote unquote come to see the importance of these these national parks, but that they needed to be sort of instructed in the fact that, you know, that, that animals could be sources of protein, that, that they could be they could be tourist draws, they could be a source of income for these new countries. So, you know, this was all very, as I said, patronizing, but but he did have a view that that it was possible for conservation to continue after independence. Some of his conservation colleagues did not have that. And I think all of them, I mean, and Huxley shared the same blind spot that his conservation colleagues did, which was just a, a lack of understanding that Africa, which is a vast and varied continent, of course, had been managed by humans for millennia and in many different ways. And that the people of Africa had a very strong sense of the importance of other species and the importance of landscapes and, and that they might have their own even more effective ideas about how to protect that for the long term. So that, that was a blind spot of the conservation movement at the time that I think continues today and is still expressed and still plays out today in different ways. It was remarkable to read the history of Rachel Carson because she comes up all the time in debates about pesticide use and, and kind of the legacy of DDT in debates about sort of agriculture today and our food system. And you point out that she's often misrepresented, and I find that's really true, that that she never said, you know, kind of all chemicals should be banned or that and that she actually favored the sparing, selective and intelligent use of chemicals. And I'm wondering, do you have a sense of like why that nuance gets lost and why she's kind of, she doesn't necessarily get fair treatment today. What I've seen people really bring their own kind of biases about regulation and sort of agriculture to to play when they're making those arguments. But it's interesting how the history has really been misrepresented in, in a lot of Current pieces on her pieces have been written last, you know, few few years about DDT. Yes, I'm wondering why do you think the nuance that she she brought into that book gets lost? Yeah, well, people love a simple story, don't they? (laughs) And and they also love sort of a counterintuitive take, like Rachel Carson was wrong, (laughs) right? You know, which you see a lot, and you know they love to they love to attack idols, and Mm. you know if you if you look at what she said, she as you say, she, she never said we should never use this. We should never use this chemical. She just said we shouldn't spray it everywhere. And which, you know, is still true today. <laughs> right. And so I just, I feel like people have, have straw man or straw womaned her just, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but just because so much nuance gets lost in our public conversation. And then, you know, like I, talked about earlier on, I think because we don't have a very strong sense of conservation history, we we tend, I think those of us who are interested in conservation do are, are partly responsible because we tend to sort of lionize these individuals like Rachel Carson, like, for instance, John Muir, uh, who founded the Sierra Club, other singular figures who, who, you know, of course, were great people and did great things. But 
but were also complicated and had dark sides and perhaps made mistakes. And, you know, we don't, we don't give them, those of us who, who respect them, don't give them the breathing room to be complicated. And I think that may have something to do with the continuing misperception of Rachel Carson in particular. The way you talk about her kind of preparing for these, this like final interview as she's dying is just really gripping that she had this sense that she has to appear just to show up and, 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 you know, make her case and appear healthy and strong. It, It must've been just a huge amount of pressure to kind of do that when you've, when you're dying of cancer, I, I can't, but it's, it's just a very compelling part of the book mm-hmm. um, to kind of have a sense, I guess, of your legacy while you're, you know, just trying to answer questions. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, she was incredible. She really was. And, you know, she, she was far seeing, she had a very, you know, capacious vision and she drew together research in a way that people weren't doing. You know, she, she didn't do original research, but she drew it together into a story in a way that people had not done. And it was powerful. But as I say, she was also a human being. And, and for, I mean, for instance, one of the things I like to remember about Rachel Carson, not because I like to criticize her, but I just like to remember that she's human, is that she, she recommended that we, we investigate biological controls <laughs> as an alternative to pesticides. And the year after that, uh, the year, excuse me, the year after Silent Spring was published, I believe, and probably in direct response to her suggestion, the first Asian carp were brought into the Mississippi Basin, which as we know, are a giant problem as an invasive species today. And they were they were seen as this like helpful organism that might help keep down the, the algae and, and plants in the in the river basin. So she I think she has become sort of a martyr and an oracle to the conservation movement and the environmental movement. And without diminishing her importance to both movements, I do like to remember that she's a human being was a human being and, and, and didn't see everything. Well, speaking of that kind of complex, tell me about the book, The Population Bomb, and like sort of what the authors got right and what they really missed. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So in 1968, the Sierra Club invited biologist Paul Ehrlich and his wife, Anne Ehrlich, to write a book called The Population Bomb, which I'm sure many people have heard of. The title has almost outlasted the book as a, as a metaphor. Uh, it was a book that was written very quickly. And I think it showed that Ehrlich's prescient concern with the effect of human numbers on the planet. I mean, I think it did ha- make some very valuable points about how humans were impacting other species and how humans were using up resources that that we needed for the future, but it was as conservationists often do. It it didn't have the same appreciation for the complexity of humans as it did for the complexity of the rest of life on Earth. Ehrlich, Paul Ehrlich, was a biologist at Stanford who studied butterflies, and he still is. He's still he's in his late eighties, but is still working today. and And he he assumed that humans this is this is generalizing or this is putting it quite broadly but he more or less assumed that that humans would behave like butterfly populations so they would grow and grow and grow until they crashed <laughs> and so he assumed the Ehrlichs assumed in the population bomb and they, they write about this quite baldly that 
that people just want more children, you know, that they're, they're going to just keep reproducing until the resources, their resources run out. And we've, of course, come to learn, and I think people were learning even at the time, that if people of any, any description, any walk of life are provided with adequate health care, and, and if girls are provided with education equal to boys, that people tend overall to choose to have smaller families. <laughs> and, you know, that, that humans exercise individual choice. They aren't just, you know, reproductive machines. And, and Ehrlich will say today, I interviewed him for the book, and he'll say, look, if we want to do something about population, the first thing we have to do is to provide full health care to to women and education for girls. There's no question about it. Unfortunately, his book, he didn't say that as strongly as he might have in, in his book. And, and his book really spawned, I think, this fear spawned, so to speak, but it, it created this fear in the environmental movement and in society at, at large of sort of an insatiable reproductive urge among humans and, and among, among the poor in particular. And that led to a lot of really inhumane policies and and I think still a, a pretty inhumane attitude within the conservation move toward people of lesser means. I, I still, you know, I think many environmental reporters can can attest that every time you write a story about an environmental problem, you'll get a bunch of cranky letters from people who are saying the real problem that you're not admitting is that populate human population is the problem. It's the root of all this. And my response to that is no human population is not the root problem. It's a symptom of another problem, which is inequity, you know, which is inequity in education and inequity in economics and healthcare and all of those other things. If we were, if we can repair the inequity, we would not have nearly the human numbers that people see as being the root problem. So I see it as a symptom and not a cause. And I think that the confusion of the two has has been counterproductive, at the very least, for the conservation movement. And if I'm remembering correctly, they also missed the agricultural boom of the green revolution, right? Or, or I guess that happens after the book, so it's not that they missed it. Well, they do mention it. They do say in the in the first edition of the book, at least, they do say that this is promising. These new crops that are that are being developed that are higher yields, that's promising. And that might head off this, these terrible famines that we are foreseeing in our very near future. And that was true. They were promising and they did, they did stave off famine to some extent. Of course, the Green Revolution, as many people know, came with other problems. It centralized power in agriculture and it led to the use of these enormous inputs in agriculture and we're still dealing with the effects of that today. So yeah, they, they were wrong on on many levels. I will, you know, I will say they were they were right to bring the issue of human numbers to public attention. But in retrospect, I think even they would say that that they were they were wrong on several points and and that that that, that those oversights led to some problems of their own. Just in thinking about the positives and drawbacks of the Green Revolution, it kind of brings us to this point of tension that's something that's very much in tension today, that there are all these benefits to this uniformity and these and this efficiency of these like high yielding crops. We get to produce all this stuff in some cases with less greenhouse gas emissions. But there's also, as we kind of 
slouch towards uniformity, we kind of give up biological diversity, and then that puts us at risk also. So there's kind of the tension between these two sides. And and at least that's something I encounter a lot in covering agriculture and climate change. But you talk about concepts of conservation biology and biological diversity. At least it seems to me this kind of, it starts to introduce what you kind of start talking about a lot in this towards the end of this book is the kind of the complexity of humanity and the complexity of all these issues, the importance of diversity in these many different areas, institutional diversity, diversity in solutions, all, all these different ways that's important. So I guess I'm wondering what your kind of take is on how we can do better at understanding our own complexity. I think for myself, I as someone who's like wants to look for answers, you know, it's hard to sort of sit with, okay, there are some benefits to this highly efficient system. There's all these benefits, but we also have to sit with the fact that there's all these drawbacks, you know, and not have a simple, you know, silver bullet answer that fixes it all for the food system. Do you have kind of some insight on how we can do better kind of just understanding our own complexity or the complexity of the world, just like sitting with that more? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I agree. I, I, I too, you know, like anyone else, would love to have a silver bullet for all of these problems. <laughs> and and it would be right. great to say, you know, this is what's going to work for the planet. But first of all, I'm not I'm not king and I can't make that happen for everyone. And and second of all, I don't think there is a silver bullet. I think we sometimes get get distracted by the search for that and by and by the illusion that that even if there were one, we could we could force everyone to adopt it. One of the people in the book that that was very pivotal for me is Eleanor Ostrom, who the political scientist who pushed back against the idea of the tragedy of the commons. And, and she has a quote in the book that I, I almost made an epigraph to the book. She was criticized early on in her career for not coming up with an overarching theory of how people could share resources as a political scientist, her, her colleagues, you know, in the, in the same way that we're talking about kind of, you know, wanted her to come up with some neat theory that she could then promote and defend for the rest of her academic career. And she kept saying, no, every place is different. And yes, we can look for patterns and we can diagnose why some systems work and others don't. But, and then she says the quote that really meant a lot to me, which is, which is something like we have to we have to learn to understand complexity and harness it and not run away from it. And I think that that to me is, you know, a lesson for us all, good advice for us all, but especially for the conservation movement. And I think one thing that's missing in the conservation movement as I write about in the chapter about conservation biology is that because a lot of people with life sciences backgrounds have come to conservation, it has focused on what other species need to survive. I mean, I think conservation and conservation biology have done a very good job of identifying here are the resources that this species or this assemblage of species needs to survive. Here's how much space they need. Here's how much food, shelter, so forth that they need to make it for the long term. And of course, there's still lots of questions, but conservation biology is speaking broadly, has done a very good job of investigating those questions. And and we now can answer those questions with a, quite a bit of sophistication. But what it hasn't done very well is to look at what humans can do and how human systems can be changed or reformed to promote the provision of those resources to other species. And I think the conservation movement is just beginning to embrace the importance of social science 
to conservation. I mean, the Society for Conservation Biology is still called the Society for Conservation Biology. It's not called the Society for Conservation Science, even though it does have a social science committee and there are social scientists within conservation biology. I think they are still seen as second-class citizens in some ways and kind of seen as an afterthought. And and they have quite vocally pushed back against that idea and said, look, we're, we're some of the most important people around. And and I think that they have a good argument that they really, we that is where the need is for conservation in terms of what, what kind of science we need next. We need, we need not only social science, but the humanities to tell us where to go from here. Some of the cross-disciplinary approaches you write about seem really promising and just like these new ways of kind of looking at, at problems that are really interesting. I'm thinking about kind of the ecosystem service, using economics and, and conservation, which and maybe it's just my own brain, but just having something quantifiable does feel sure. <laughs> yeah. does a sense of like, ah, oh, this is something I can, you know, approach. I Now I can see what's needed in steps, you know, it just gives you a, a bit of a roadmap at least, which is, which is so helpful. Yeah. I mean, Aldo Leopold saw the need for a, a what he called ecological economics you know, back in, in the 40s before his death. And, and people since then have done a lot of work in trying to quantify what conservation is worth in financial terms to humans. And, and that's, of course, controversial. There are some people who say, well, you can never capture the true value of, of natural systems in terms of dollars. And that's very true. But but the people who are promoting ecosystem valuation will say, well, yes, but right now in, in all of our, in all of our financial transactions and negotiations, the value of the ecosystem is zero. <laughs> so don't you think we should, wouldn't it be better if we were able to assign it some value with the caveat that that's always going to be incomplete. And, and I think that's a good point. I want to mention these community-led conservancies and kind of the, I think there's a meeting you attend and just how it's sort of like chaotic, but also kind of exhilarating. Mm -hmm. And again, back to this sort of thing that's always on my mind of how do we kind of, you know, I guess, harness that chaos, as you said, we need a global sense of urgency, but we can't have this sort of global coordination where we're all doing the same thing, you know, top down kind of approach. So what is kind of the, the, balance there of connecting globally, I guess, just to sort of, just in terms of the the urgent the urgency of it all, but letting everyone, sort of enabling some of these community-led solutions and all their messiness play out and uncertainty. Well, the, the community-led conservation effort that I wrote about was in, is in Namibia, Namibia in Southern Africa, and it got its start in the 1980s as sort of a, a set of individual experiments with individual communities. And it has now grown to a nationwide system of community conservancies where people who live on communal land, communally managed land, can, can form a conservancy and can work with regional and national authorities in surveying their own wildlife, setting their own hunting quotas, and, and then forming their own systems of game guards to control poaching. And it has really returned a sense of responsibility and, and interest and care in local species 
to these communities, which during the years of colonization, in many ways came to see other species as sort of government property, animals that were being preserved for foreigners, and animals that they had to that they had to sort of deal with on an everyday basis, but that they weren't realizing any benefits from community conservancies have allowed them to realize some benefits from tourism from from hunting and and have also relieved some of the burdens of of living next to occasionally dangerous animals by allowing them to you know set up practices that, for instance, keep lions away from their herds of goats or or allow them to shoot individual troublesome animals, that sort of thing. And it, what it's really uncovered is that, that people generally don't want their local species to go extinct. They, they are, and they are willing to go to some trouble to conserve them. Conservation doesn't have to be free, but it does have to, I think, allow people to make a living and uh, allow them some sense of control over their daily lives and over the over the animals that they they live beside, if those things are available, then then people are, are quite willing to say, yeah, we, we want these species, you know, even even the ones that cause us problems and trample our crops occasionally, we, we do want them to survive for the long term, and, and we're willing to participate in these in these systems that will make that possible. And so that's a long answer to your question, but I think that these the evolution of the system in Namibia is really encouraging because it has, it started out as an individual set of community efforts. It's now coordinated on a national level. And then, you know, Namibia as a nation is part of the international union uh, for the conservation of nature. And so it's, it obeys the, the quotas that are set under international treaties as far as how many individuals of vulnerable species can be shot every year and, and which species need to be conserved until they until they have healthier populations. And so the, so there you have a nested hierarchy of of authority which which allows community autonomy but is still accountable to to national and even international institutions that can take a broader view of how a species is doing on an international or even a global scale and can act accordingly. Are there any kind of parallels or any community-based approaches in the U.S. that you that you saw? Maybe that brings us back to managing the bison and sort of feeding them and I think maybe elementary school programs or something like that. Is that kind of a, a similar idea playing out? Yeah, I think there are some parallels. It's of course not exactly the same, but there's some, there's some common threads. Yeah. And bison is a great example because there you have tribal communities managing herds of bison and they are both important culturally. They're important for conservation and it, and I was just recently speaking to a couple of different leaders of, of new bison management projects who were saying that the pandemic has made it especially clear to them that it's a very good idea for some of these rural communities to have a more reliable source of local meat. <laughs> so mm-hmm. in the, a young tribal counselor in, in Southern Canada was saying, you know, we, we made it through the pandemic through food deliveries, but there were definitely times when it would have been very beneficial to be able to slaughter a bison and have a you know supply of, of 
healthy meat for local families, you know, during times when our supply chains were, were not functioning very well. And so those are, I think those are instances that have some of the same characteristics where people are, are, have, have some power, have some management authority over their local species and are, are realizing benefits along with reducing some of the burdens of, of conservation. And I also see it in, in efforts to manage predators like wolves. Those are, I think, have been less clearly successful, but there are, there's some good thinking about, you know, how the, how the costs of conservation of predators can be reduced at a local level and, and perhaps reduce some of the polarization that happens around, around predators. And I did some reporting, this isn't in the book, but I did some reporting in Norway a couple of years ago where, where people are quite polarized about wolves in much the same way that people in North America are polarized around wolves. And, and one of the most hopeful stories I heard was that when people participated in, in some of the camera trap surveys of, not, not of wolves, but of other predators like lynx, that they, that their, their, added, their distrust of the government changed and, and really evaporated in many ways because there, there had been this, this very deep cultural and political divide between rural people and, and the national government, which they saw as you know, coming in and forcing them to have wolves in their backyard and, or in this case, lynx in their backyard. And once they started participating in these camera surveys and, and taking the data themselves, they trusted the data and then they, they became collaborators in a sense with the national government and it, it, or the representatives of the national government. And it really changed the conversation. It didn't solve all the problems, of course, but it reduced that, that gulf that so often exists in conservation conversations. It's like citizen scientists kind yeah, of approach. So it was, and it was really surprising and encouraging to me how, what a difference that made. Uh, yeah. it's, it's not a, not a big thing, but it, I think it, it showed respect to rural people by the national government. And then it, it, it increased the rural people's trust in, in just in the, in the information because they were taking it themselves and, and they, they, they knew it was okay. Finally, you write about the complicated role of technology and species protection and, and kind of thinking about the role of technology in, in the future. We have all these really exciting possibilities and you could have really describe one of them sprino it's like really vivid description and new exciting technologies capture headlines often like you know can we bring back the woolly mammoth but it, all of that excitement kind of doesn't change the difficult work ahead once you've kind of gotten all you can out of that technology yeah. sort of like step one so and then again this kind of brings up again that sort of complexity and how we need to be facing that so yeah where do you see the role of technology and kind of like how you see us moving forward in using it judiciously or where it makes sense, but also not losing sight of, I guess, back to Leopold, the sort of ethical obligation we have, the bigger work we have to do? Yeah. I mean, I think the missing ingredient in a lot of, not in the scientists themselves who are, who are developing these technologies, but in the way they're perceived by others I think the missing ingredient is humility. We, the scientists who are who are going to the great trouble of developing reproductive technologies that can, for instance, you know, help rebuild the incredibly tiny surviving population of northern white rhinos that's left on the planet. They know that what they're doing is it is a long shot, and that if it succeeds, which is a very open question at this point, 
that it will only get us to the traditional starting line of conservation, that we're still going to have to control poaching and protect habitat and, <laughs> you know, do all the difficult work of learning to live alongside a very large animal that, you know, that people in, for instance, in the community conservancies in, in Namibia have been, have been working on for 30 years now. So yeah. I think the people, as I said, who, who are developing these technologies are quite humble about their possibilities, but we as outsiders often will th- Think, oh, okay, perhaps we can get ourselves out of this fix with technology. Perhaps we can just make more animals. Wouldn't that be great? We wouldn't have to go through all this tedious, boring <laughs> process of protecting habitat and, and changing our behavior and all these things that are incremental and, and complicated and frustrating and politically sensitive. But the, the truth is, we still got to wrestle with that stuff, no matter how great our technology is. So I, I hope we can you know, as a society, as individuals, put the potential of that technology in its proper place and see it as an emergency measure, as measures that we don't want to have to use. We don't want to get into a situation where a species is so endangered that we're having to perform these heroic measures and develop these new technologies just to keep it on the planet. We want to be living alongside species in abundance. And we still have a lot of species that are abundant and that could use our preventive medicine, so to speak. And I think as a journalist, I think that the media has a role to play in in trying to tell more stories about the everyday work of conservation. It's not as glamorous as bringing so-called bringing back the woolly mammoth, which we can't do, but people like to talk about, people like to wonder about the possibility of bringing back like a woolly mammoth elephant clone. And I mean, these are all cool possibilities and they're fun to talk about and they're, they're dramatic stories, but conservation is really interesting once you get into it. And I think if we can get past our initial, oh, you know, saving habitat, we've heard about that before. That's an old story. If we can get past that initial resistance and, and find these cool human stories about things that are happening in conservation, I think media has a really important role to play in in broadening the public's perception of what conservation is, because it's not just about saving these single charismatic endangered species. That's what we thought it was 150 years ago, but we've come a long way. And we now know it's about pre- protecting relationships and protecting complexity. And I think the media can can do a lot in, and conservation organizations can do, can do a lot more in getting that idea across to the public. I definitely hope so. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Michelle. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for having me. 